Serve Alper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, as he is most Mondays, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, Cameron and I discuss not only Philip Humber's perfect game, which of course he produced this past weekend against the hapless Seattle Mariners, but also Philip Humber's journey to date and what we might expect from him going forward. We also discuss to what degree Humber's pitching coach Don Cooper may or may not be responsible for Humber's recent success. Moving on, Cameron and I discussed the new SI Power Rankings powered by Fangraph's War. I asked Cameron what the benefits of a war-powered power rankings are, and also what the limitations might be. Finally, we look at a new feature of the site, announced by David Appleman on Monday afternoon, which is Fangraph's Guts. Guts allows readers to see league average WOBA, runs per win, the constant for fielding independent pitching, and the sort of variables that go into the WOBA calculation. That stuff's pretty nerdy, but what it does tell us is that offense is considerably down this April. The 312 Woba, which Major League batters are currently producing, represents the lowest such figure since 1988. The cold weather of April might have something to do with it. Cameron considers the other variables as well. It's managing editor Dave Cameron. It's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Perhaps because no one else would. But uh, it says right in the title of your piece, you don't think Philip Humber, who is a pitcher who's pitched for, I don't know, three or four organizations at this point, um, maybe drafted by the Mets, sent to the Twins, pitched for the Royals at some point. Yep. Claimed left the A's, uh, claimed by the, the A's on waivers, and then they changed their mind a few weeks ago, and, or a few weeks later, and designated him for assignment. So he was an Oakland A for uh, the holidays, but uh, didn't ever make it to spring training with them. Um, right, so that's happened. All of that's happened, and then this weekend he pitched a perfect game. Your suggestion yeah. is that he's not a fluke. I mean, do you think he's going to pitch a perfect game every outing? Yeah. Well, as long as we can face the Mariners in Seattle, that's a distinct possibility. Uh, no, I mean obviously I wasn't trying to say that uh, Philip Humber's outing on Saturday was not was not a fluke. I mean any perfect game is going to require a lot of luck and good fortune and. You know, is generally not sustainable. Uh, but I do think that in terms of Philip Humber being a good pitcher, uh, that might stick around for a while. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen in Chicago is, uh, Don Cooper is a wizard and can take pretty much any kind of crappy starting pitcher or reliever you throw at him and turn him into an ace. Uh, and so, uh, he apparently would tinkering with Humber's, uh, pitch repertoire, giving him a slider, um, and then, you know, potentially some added velocity, Humber's, Humber's uh, average fastball is up about a mile an hour through his first two starts so far this year, I and mean, that might not last all year, obviously, but, you know, added velocity is never a bad thing. So, uh, you know, throwing a little bit harder, throwing a new pitch, and throwing strikes, um, you know, Humber could very well be a, a quality starting pitcher for the White Sox. Yeah, you know, you, I mean, you mentioned Don Cooper. He, at this point, has uh, sort of um, found himself as part of the ranks of the, the very top um Pitching coaches, uh, sort of in that in that area up there, I'd say. Well, I guess I'll ask you. I mean, how does he compare at this point to Dave Duncan and, and Leo Mazzoni, for example? Uh, I would say at this point, Cooper's recent track record is stronger than either of those. And Mazzoni obviously doesn't have much of a recent track record, but you know, with Mazzoni, uh, he got really good performance out of really good pitchers. So you know, we don't know how much he was able to coax extra value out of guys like Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin. 
John Smoltz, you know, Hall of Fame caliber arms. Uh, you know, he had a really good reputation for working with those guys. They all liked him, but they weren't bad pitchers even before they got to Leo Mazzoni. Dave Duncan a little bit more along the lines of, you know, pitcher rescuing, turning mediocre guys into good pitchers. Uh, he's had success, um, you know, with guys like Kyle Loach, but they, they were decent pitchers beforehand too. He doesn't have a ton of, you know, he has Joel Pinero, but then Pinero kind of fell apart. It wasn't a long-term thing. Um, he doesn't have a ton of guys where you look at him and say, this guy was bad, and then Dave Duncan caught him, and this guy was good. Dave Duncan turns everyone he touches into a ground ball guy, but he doesn't necessarily turn everyone he touches into an ace. Uh, Don Cooper, we're going on like six or seven guys at this point where, you know, they haven't been good. I mean, Gavin Floyd was a train wreck before he got to Chicago. Now Gavin Floyd is, you know, a legitimate number three starter in the American League in a good hitter's ballpark. And, you know, if he's doing this with Humber, too, where, you know, he's able to change his repertoire and turn him into a, you know, a good number three starter, this is a guy who's been released by half of the American League Central, um, was basically given up on. Uh, you know, I would say at this point I would take Don Cooper over any pitching coach in baseball and, you know, maybe over any pitching coach in baseball in recent history. You know, you, you mentioned um, Dave Duncan, how he turns every pitcher. I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but he turns he's noted for turning pitchers into ground ball pitchers uh, and perhaps also giving them, um, you know, helping them pitch in the zone a little bit more. Um I'm curious, does Don Cooper, does he have that sort of signature um, uh, touch on, on pitchers, or, or are their results a little bit more varied? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think he was known a little bit for teaching the cutter. So Esteban Loiza is one of his famous, uh, you know, junk-to-star kind of reclamation projects. And Loiza got to Chicago, and he taught Loiza a cutter, and Loiza turned into a good pitcher. Um, and then there are a few other examples where he was uh, kind of promoting the use of the cut fastball, which is generally... Um, risen in popularity recently as people have seen how effective it can be. Uh, but we also see things like Matt Thornton, who just couldn't throw strikes in Seattle and was absolutely terrible. The White Sox got him for Joe Borchard. Uh, and, Matt, and Cooper basically told him, hey, throw the ball down the middle. And uh, it worked. <laughs> Thornton's control was so bad that when he tried to throw it down the middle, it ended up on the corners. And so it was 98 in a good location. Uh, and Thornton turned into a really good relief pitcher. Um, you know, and with Humber, it's actually the opposite. He took away his cutter and gave him a slider, and uh, that seems to be working pretty well. So I don't know that we can kind of put Cooper in a box. He seems to be pretty good at figuring out what works for a given pitcher and saying, hey, do this, it'll make you better. I was looking at some of Humber's pitch usage. It looked like last season he threw at least what was classified as a slider about uh, 12 13% of the time. And it looks like that's uh, after however many starts at this point. Um, it, it actually looks like that's about doubled um, in the early going here. Is, is that something you see as a trend, and, and um, is that something that he utilized a lot in that Mariners start? Yeah, so I think if you look at the game-by-game charts for Humber, what you see is uh, there's actually an article in the Chicago Tribune um, where Cooper talks about he threw a cutter at the beginning of the year, didn't throw a slider at all last year in the, in the beginning of the season, and that's really when the transformation happened. Cooper went to him and said, hey, look, your cutter sucks, let's try it as a slider. And towards the end of April, he started to make that transition. And you can see as the year goes on, he became more comfortable. He started throwing more sliders and fewer cutters. And then in the start on Saturday, it was almost all sliders. There's a giant batch of, uh, you know, like 30 sliders in, the, in that 84 to 86 mile an hour range where he's got a lot of swinging strikes. He got Brendan Ryan to end the game on a slider down and away. Um, and I think you can really kind of see the progression of a guy kind of shifting away from the cutter towards 
that slider, his slider usage was a lot higher in the second half than it was in the first half, and it's a lot higher so far this year than it was last year. So I think what we're seeing is a guy becoming more comfortable with a pitch he hasn't thrown previously in his career, and now he's going to get to the point where it's basically his best swing and miss pitch. And so now um, the, the pitcher that Philip Humber is now, uh, I mean, is there is there a comparable for him? Or, I mean, even without using a comparable, can you tell us what sort of pitcher he'll be? Well, Humber's always been a guy with really, really low walk rates. Um, you know, he's been 4 or 5% for most of his minor league career. Uh, last year, you know, his, his walk rate was extremely low, and he was more of a pitch-to-contact guy, but um, still didn't walk anyone. Uh, I think his walk rate was just under 6% last year. Um, and so you know Humber's going to be one of those, uh, you know, around-the-zone kind of guys, but he's never been able to miss bats before. So now if you're a... Uh, a, content, uh, a strike thrower who can, you know, get a strikeout when he needs it. Uh, he's not going to be Jared Weaver, but that's the kind of, um, you know, type of pitcher you're maybe looking at. You know, Weaver gets a lot more fly balls than Humber does, uh, and, you know, Humber doesn't have that kind of excellent changeup that's going to get, you know, 25% strikeout rates. But when you think of, like, extreme control guys who also get strikeouts, you know, Dan Heron, um, that kind of pitcher, Ian Kennedy, uh, I don't think Humber's going to be quite that good, but, you know, the, the transformation from just a pitch-to-contact strike thrower into a strike thrower who can miss bats is a, is a pretty big step forward. Now, what does this mean for the White Sox? Um, obviously, the prognosis for them going into the season was not particularly strong. Uh, they had um, gotten rid of some players. Uh, they'd made some trades like Sergio Santos going to the Blue Jays for Nestor Molina. Um, and, of course, Alex Rios and Adam Dunn are coming off just uh, miserable seasons. Uh, now, though, it'll, it appears as though Philip Humber um, could be better than anyone would have expected. And we also have Jake Peavy, who entering tonight's game, uh, Monday night's game against the A's, I think has maybe the sixth highest pitcher war um, in the majors, you know, among qualified pitchers. Um, what does this mean for the White Sox, and how, how do we have to sort of revise our expectations of that team? Well, you know, the White Sox were funny because they went into the offseason declaring that they were rebuilding, and then they didn't really trade anyone away except for their closer. <laughs> so uh, they didn't really rebuild. They kind of kept John Banks around with a contract extension. They didn't trade Gavin Floyd. Uh, they got PV back healthy. They were hoping for resurgent years from Adam Dunn and Alex Rios. Um, you know, they didn't really tear down a team that was okay last year. I mean, they weren't great, but they weren't, you know, abysmal in terms of uh, true talent level. They had some really bad performances, but they weren't guys that you could look at and just be like, this guy's awful. Um, so, you know, if Alexi Ramirez ever starts hitting again, which he usually does right around May or so, um, and Alejandro de Aza, you know, solidifies center field, uh, that offense has a chance to be okay, and the pitching staff's really good. And, uh, you know, I think with Cooper around, we shall expect that the White Sox are going to continue to get quality work from their pitchers. Even if PV gets hurt, they'll probably just find another guy on the junk pile who will come in and post an ERA of one. Um, and, you know, I think until the White Sox actually do decide to start rebuilding, I think maybe the skepticism about their ability to contend this year was uh, a little bit overblown. And, you know, I don't think they're as good as the, the Tigers, but they can probably hang around in the American League Central for a little while. Now, on that note of, uh, of the quality of certain teams, um, uh, readers might have seen last week uh, that um, Sports Illustrated, the first iteration of their power rankings, uh, is in fact powered by Fangraph's war. Uh, I was wondering, uh, could you talk about that project a little bit? Are we going to see, is that going to be a weekly um, project? Are we going to see that today, for example? We saw it last Monday. And what are the sort of things, like, I guess, to what degree should we regard this as um, as written in stone uh, regarding the quality of teams? 
Yeah, I mean, the, for the FI power ranking, they, Sports Illustrated approached us and said, hey, we want to do something a little different with our power rankings. Is there something, you know, a little smarter that we can do than just the, you know, gut feel? Uh, this team has had a hot week. They went 6-1. and one. Let's move them way up. And uh, so we suggested a few options for how they can rank teams a little more objectively based on how they've performed. Um, and so, you know, Team War is something that is obviously not a perfect evaluation of team performance, uh, but it, it's a, a good look at the components and how a team is doing batting, pitching, fielding, uh, and kind of their underlying performances, things that are more likely to carry over than hitting with runners in scoring position or stranding runners. Um, so in general, if you look at team war uh, and team final team standing at the end of the year, they have a really high correlation. Teams that are good and win a lot of games have a lot of war. And so um, it's, not, it's not a coincidence uh, of the guts of war kind of um, power wins and losses uh, for the most part. And so... You know, this isn't something where I would say this team has, you know, .3 war more than another team. They're clearly better. But if one team has 40 war and another team has 30 war, you can pretty much bet that the team with 40 war is a better team, even if they don't necessarily have a better record at that point. So um, I do think this is a, an opportunity for a major site to kind of educate their fans a little, educate their readers a little bit. Um, you know, I think in a, in a perfect world, we might uh, add in some regression and say, hey, look, you know, the results of two weeks – uh, you know, need to be regressed back to some kind of projection, but we also have to keep in mind that we're, you know, dealing with a mainstream audience, and so you're not going to necessarily uh, get them to buy into, uh, you know, heavy regression to the mean. And uh, But I, I think for Sports Illustrated, this is a, a step forward in their power rankings, uh, gives them something a little bit more analytical and can kind of get the average fan thinking about what teams are actually the best in a different light. So last week we saw... The Cardinals and Rangers atop the power rankings, and that was not very surprising. One team that we addressed at some length in last week's podcast was the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they were fifth. I'm curious, who are we going to see at the extreme top and bottom of this week's list? Well, Texas is coming out on top, which shouldn't be any surprise considering what they've done over the last week and kind of rampaging through Detroit. And, you know, Texas is playing like a, you know, one of the best teams of all time over the first couple weeks of the season. Uh, you know, not to give away too much, but I'll, I'll tell you that their expected wins are right in line with what you expect from their war. This is a 13-3 and team that's just won a couple of close games and, you know, gotten some good luck. They've just played like a team that's winning 84% of their games so far, so that won't last, but right now it's clearly played like the best team in baseball. Um, and, you know, I think you, there's some interesting surprises that you'll find when looking through the differences. Uh, you know, Kansas City has lost 10 in a row and is off to a really poor start in the standings. But if you look at their underlying components, their uh, offense is about league average. Their pitching hasn't been that bad. Uh, really, the thing that's cost them wins is they haven't hit well in the runners in scoring position. They have the worst clutch score of any team in baseball right now. Uh, and so that's something that doesn't show up in the war power rankings because uh, timing isn't part of the war calculations. So the Royals actually do surprisingly well, and I think that'll be one of the things that we can point out and say, hey, look, this is a team that's probably better than they're playing, and this system will reward a team like that, which is hitting well and pitching you know, okay. They're not pitching great, but they're pitching okay, uh, and won't penalize them for the distribution of when those hits come. Right, and, and uh, what about towards... The bottom of that list. Do you have any uh, any? I know I know you want to give away the entire thing, but are there any teams that are going to surprise us uh, down towards the bottom of that list? I don't think so. The teams that are down towards the bottom are the ones you'd expect. The Pirates, you know, aren't hitting at all, so they come in last with you know uh, a really pathetic offense and not great pitching. Uh, the Mariners are, I think, 29th for the same kind of thing, terrible offense. And, you know, besides Felix, the pitching hasn't been very good. The Twins are down there. So the teams that you would think, eh, these teams aren't very good, and they've played like they aren't very good, and, and their rankings reflect it. 
Um, and, and what about the Dodgers? I mean, you don't necessarily talk, need to talk about them specifically with regard to the power rankings, but the Dodgers have been a team that surprised us and, uh, you know, or at least surprised um, this uh, podcast host. Um, and, of course, Matt Kemp is off to a preposterous start. Um, Matt Kemp and Andre Ethier and then the rest of the Dodgers. Uh, are they still surprising you? Or are they still surprising war? Uh, yeah, you know, they still rate really well by current season war, in part because war doesn't take into account strength of schedule. And as we talked about last week, the Dodgers had a very easy first 10 games this season. Um, I think the Dodgers overall are going to come out still in the top five or six, um, but they're not uh, a team that we would expect to stay there. So this is kind of where that regression component comes in, where if we were going to do it and say, you know, this is who we actually believe is the best team in baseball right now, rather than just reflecting how they've played in the first couple weeks of the season, we'd probably regress the Dodgers back a decent amount and say, you know, based on what we understand about their overall talent levels and that can't, can't keep doing this, we probably think they're, you know, maybe a 500 team, something in that range. Uh, but because it's just based on the first two weeks of 2012, the Dodgers are going to come out pretty well because they actually played well the first couple weeks of the season, uh, especially when you don't adjust for who they've played. Now, in terms of in terms of those first couple weeks of the season, um, actually something that uh, our uh, founder, uh, David Appleman, uh, released or announced on the site today is that um, something that's available to readers now is what he calls Fangraph's Guts, um, which is to say uh, the uh, some of the league constants um, and league averages that uh, – you know, in some cases, maybe you could have uh, sort of devised from looking at numbers, or could have you know figured out other ways. Are now sort of available all in one page. One thing that it's impossible not to notice uh, while looking at at the new Fangraphs Guts page is that uh, League Woba is as low as it's been at 3:12. Is as low as it's been since 1988. Um, and and it, even in the 80s, uh, rarely was it that low. I mean, these are historically low levels. I mean, at least in sort of uh, the era of baseball since you and I have been alive. Um, what's the deal with that, and and what's causing it, and will it? Do you think it's just a, a product of April? Yeah, I mean, April has something to do with it. So I think you know what we have to keep in mind right now is we're comparing. Uh, April stats to all other full season year stats, and we know that offense trends up in the summer when the weather gets warmer and the ball flies a little bit more. Uh, we know that offense is usually at its lowest for a season in April. So right now we're only looking at April versus full year. For a more fair comparison, you'd want to look at April versus April in all those years, and I would imagine those numbers would come down, uh, not to 312 levels, but they would not look, the, the differences wouldn't look quite as extreme, uh, if you were only looking at April versus April. But, you know, I do think what we've seen over the last, you know, five years or so is essentially a trend uh, significantly upward in strikeouts, which is actually like a 20-year trend. Strikeouts have been trending up for quite a while now and show no signs of slowing down. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, a decrease in hits allowed and balls in play. So um, I think batting average and balls in play is below 290 this year at the league level. Um, it's the lowest it's been in quite a while. Back in the you know turn of the, turn of the century, it was uh, around 310, 305. Um, it was pretty high. And so what we're seeing now is, you know, more strikeouts, and then when the ball is hit, uh, it's more likely to be coming out. And so, you know, those two factors are driving down runs a lot. Home runs are down a little bit, not as much as people think. Uh, people like to attribute it to steroids and say, oh, man, look, now that they're testing, uh, you know, all these big power hitters aren't hitting for home runs anymore. Uh, there's probably some truth to some of that, but it's certainly not the only trend, and it doesn't explain, you know, the rise in strikeout rate. Uh, if these big muscle-bound sluggers were, you know, 
uh, not able to hit home runs anymore, but still striking out a record cases, they'd find themselves out of the game very quickly. So the fact that strikeouts are still trending up even after steroid testing suggests to me that there's something else going on. Uh, well, yeah, do we know what that other thing is? I mean, is it, is it uh, pitcher zones, or is this just uh, something that can be a mystery? Uh, it's one of those things that I don't think you can pinpoint and say, this is the reason. I think it's a combination of factors. So one of the things we're seeing is most of the new ballparks that have opened in the last 10 years have been pretty pitcher-friendly. Um, you know, that ballpark down in Miami is really huge, and, you know, in Seattle and San Diego, there's been some significant pitcher parks that have opened up. Uh, in the last 10 years, I do think some of it can be cyclical. So we see arms like Clayton Kershaw and Justin Berlander and Steven Strasburg and, you know, some pretty special arms that you would say, oh, this is a once-in-a-generation type guy. Uh, you know, and then we get like one a year, basically, for the last five or six years. So we have this wave of good young pitching coming into the game. Um, I think, you know, teams have started to value defense a little bit more. So, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have had Brett Gardner playing left field for the New York Yankees. They would have gotten, you know, some big lumbering slugger with 40 home runs and very good defensively. But a lot of teams have come around to the idea of playing multiple center fielders side by side. And um, so I think we're seeing lower production out of the corner outfield spots than we've ever seen before as, as the shift towards defense in the outfield has become a little bit more valued. Um, so I think it's a, a number of factors. I, mean, I don't think we can ignore steroids. Certainly I would imagine that testing has uh, dampened offense to some degree. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there's probably not one thing. It's probably – uh, parks and pitchers and steroids and defense and you know it could even just be a cyclical thing too. I mean, there's been some docket maybe it's umpires and calling the strike zone differently. Uh, the adoption of pitch effects made have uh, you know made them call the zone a little bit more accurately and a little bit larger. Uh, some people think that the ball is no longer juiced. And if you look at like uh, you know the giant spike in batting average on balls in play in the early 90s. Um, it kind of coincides with when people started whispering that Major League Baseball began juicing the ball. And, uh, you know, maybe it was in their best interest to, after they started steroid testing to de-juice the ball in order to show everyone that it worked. Uh, so that's a theory. I think that there's probably a lot of factors. Yeah, and one, one thing that seems to have come of it, too, is that um, the, the relative weights um, in, in terms of runs of, um, of stolen bases and caught stealing, uh, this relationship has changed. Um, during the uh, the early aughts, especially, we saw that the required uh, um, stolen base rate um, increased pretty considerably um, because the value of a of a stolen base wasn't worth the risk of of getting caught stealing. Uh, it appears as though that relationship has changed. Do you think Do you think that'll affect the game at all? And do you think that um, old timey commentators will love it? Uh, I, mean, I do think there's something to be said for uh, you know saying. Tom Tango had a post in his blog last week about, you know, his preferred method of, of baseball or his preferred era of baseball is when you can line up the 40 homer slugger next to the 100 stolen base guy and not know just based on that which one is better. So if you can put Ricky Henderson right next to Barry Bonds and say they're both awesome, uh, that's what he would prefer and that you can have a little bit of variety in the game. And I do think that, you know, this kind of shift in lower run scoring environment does allow guys like Henderson or Brett Gardner or Peter Borges or, you know, some of these guys who aren't big power hitters to have more value and to be a little bit more um, common in the game. So it's not like, oh, yeah, there's one or two of these fast outfielders or, you know, speedy shortstops, but there's a preponderance of these types of players who can bring exciting types of players to baseball. I and mean, if you go to a game in a stadium, you know, there's a, a huge roar when someone has a chance for a triple. Uh, obviously, there's wars for home runs too, but it's a different kind of uh, different aspect of the game that I think was missing for a while, and is starting to come back into the fold. So, um, 
I personally prefer lower run scoring games where athleticism is a little bit more rewarded. Uh, you know, for all we talk about the value of walks and money ball and all that kind of stuff, it's not a very entertaining game to watch. Uh, lots of walks, lots of strikeouts, lots of home runs, kind of boring. So I think the shift back towards this style of 1980s baseball is probably a more entertaining product overall. Well, uh, if you like low-scoring games, uh, Dave Cameron, then you certainly cheer for the right team. That's true, but I think the, uh, the goal is for both teams to be low-scoring. The Mariners generally have uh, one-way low-scoring games, which aren't nearly as fun as you might think. Hey, speaking of which, uh, 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 Seattle ace Felix Hernandez um, I'm not sure where his velocity was last game, but apparently his changeup was pretty good and good enough to strike out like a, a hundred guys. Yeah, uh, so Felix, his velocity is still a little bit down. He was 90 to 93. Uh, his fastball's down about two miles an hour over where it was last year. Um, he's definitely not throwing his fastball as hard as he was previously, but his other three pitches are just as good as ever. And, uh, you know, I wrote a post on USS Mariner after his last start, basically uh, emphasizing that Felix's changeup has always been his best pitch, and now he's realizing it. So now that his fastball isn't, you know, a 95-mile-an-hour two-seamer that can get him a ground ball whenever he wants to, uh, now a guy comes up in a tough situation, and he says, hey, look, here's my changeup, hit it if you can, and his changeup is so good that they can't hit it. And in some ways, his his spiritual brother, uh, Tim Lincecum, or at least in the, in the sense that um, Lincecum also dealing with velocity issues, but with also a nasty changeup, is uh, starting tonight. He, I think his first three starts, he hasn't even pitched more than 12 or 13 innings over them just because he's been forced to leave them uh, leave them all. Um, you think he's going to be okay, or at least you think history suggests he'll be okay. Um, he gets to face the Mets, which doesn't seem like the worst possible matchup. You know, starting now, do you think we're going to see someone more like Tim Lincecum? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was trying to write in that post last week was more that uh, Tim Lincecum could be okay. I'm not sure he's going to be. I I don't know that I would uh, give him a five-year contract extension right now. And the lower velocity has to be somewhat of a concern. But I do think that we've seen that, you know, Lincecum's lost velocity before and been just fine because his changeup is so good. And he's not a pitcher who necessarily needs a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Uh, in order to succeed. I mean, you know, we talked about Michael Pineda when he went down in spring training. This was a guy who had to throw hard. He wasn't going to be any good. Uh, Lincecum and Felix are not like that. Their secondary stuff is so good that they don't have to throw in the mid-90s in order to get hitters out. Uh, they're better when they're throwing in the mid-90s, but they can still be productive pitchers throwing in the low-90s, or in Lincecum's case, the high-80s. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there is evidence that guys who have sudden velocity loss uh, could often be hiding an injury. So I'm not saying that Lincecum is not hurt and that, you know, we definitely can rule that out as a factor. What I was trying to do is point out that other pitchers have gone through the similar type of struggle in April and then been very good the rest of the year. So we shouldn't just assume that low velocity and high ERA equals injured pitcher. I mean, there's enough evidence to the contrary that we should say, okay, there's a chance that Lincecum could be adding an injury, and this could all be part of the uh, decline in velocity trend that we've seen with him over the last few years, and his decline in strikeout rates, and you know some warning warning signs continuing. Or it could just be a small sample fluke, and he could turn into an ace for the rest of the year. We don't know. Okay, Dave Cameron, uh, that is all good information, and uh, will be now uh, something that I edit on this computer that's right in front of me, and then distribute to the masses. Well, just don't edit it to have me say something like, I love Hitler. Oh, yeah. No, don't worry. Uh, that would, uh, only if Dane Perry were involved. Um, right. Would that be something, yeah. Oh, God, that guy. Real problem. <laughs> uh, although he said nice things about you on his most recent podcast. It was the only, really the only thing I could I could publish from it. 
Wow, was he drinking? Because uh, uh, there must have been some kind of foreign substance involved for him to say nice things. No, I no, I think it was uh, it was uh, just after the release of uh, or the, um, the piece of, uh, by Doug Miller. Uh, when, oh when, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah, he was he was in a, in a, a position where he couldn't say anything bad about me because of. Uh, a story about me having cancer. Right? Yeah, right, yeah. But, God, Cameron, you're, uh, some of those photos of you from your youth are pretty rough. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the one of my Little League team photo, which I think most people missed because it was off in a little photo gallery to the side and the link wasn't very prominent. But there was the first photo in the gallery was uh, me when I was like eight years old in the Little League. And uh, I didn't remember that I was being coached by someone who looked exactly like Randy Johnson's shorter brother and then Groucho Marx. My uh, Little League coaches had some rough 90s looks going on. That sounds, yeah. Well, Groucho Marx, the famous character of the 1990s. Yes, right. Well, uh, you know, he was trying to bring it back. And, uh, you know, the short shorts. I mean, the whole look was really, really fantastic. Yeah, those. it's probably best of the decades behind us. Uh, yeah, you know, it seems like uh, I'm not a fashion trend expert or uh, anyone that, you know, you would look to for any kind of advice on how to look smooth. Yeah. But what happened to that? I don't understand how people left the house looking like they did. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand either. Well, I know, um, I know, like, um, so I was talking with someone about '80s, like heavy metal, um, and I know, like, you know, that there was a lot of um, like tight pants during the '80s, certainly. Yeah. And apparently, a lot of that was reaction to uh, the '70s, where everything had been baggy. But I don't know what explains the '90s. Maybe everyone was just, uh, I don't know what people were doing. No excuses, yeah. I guess. Maybe. It was just like a lack of mirrors. Or, uh, yeah, it just, I mean, it just seems very weird. Like, I look at some of these pictures, and I realize that anytime you look back on the historical pictures, you're always going to think something looks funny, but those pictures look astonishingly funny. Yeah, yeah, good points. Points yeah. all around. All right, Cameron, well, why don't you go do what it is you do, and, uh, and we'll make this happen. Thanks for joining. Right. Thanks for joining Fangraphs Audio, though. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, that is, uh, Dave Cameron, our managing editor. I am Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. 